0: Can we talk about the most interesting part of chess? Yes. Draw.
1: (laughs) Well, we've gotten a lot of comments about the draw. Draw should not be allowed. You shouldn't be able to offer a draw. If you are in a losing position and you go for the threefold repetition, you are a bad person. (laughs) People seem pretty angsty about the draw.
0: Yeah, I don't get that at all. I'm going to take the general sentiment of anti against that claim. Draws fucking rule. If
1: (laughs) (laughs) Jaden's having trouble keeping a straight face.
0: No, I'm just like, I'm truly outing myself for who I am. I'm like a true verse. I'm just like a Libra moon and rising. I love draws. Everyone should get half the point. Chess without draws honestly sounds like a terrible game because if the end result was you win or lose period, that requires the side who is slightly worse to be taking a lot of risk. And that is famously one of the easiest ways to quickly lose a game, Right. Right. So I just think that without the threat of the defending side being able to argue that they can hold, then right. all they would have yeah. to do is just like just implode and self-destruct. And that sounds like a terrible game. So in general, I'm very pro drums. One. One.
1: Yeah. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties?
0: Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal?
1: Welcome to the Chess Feels podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love.
0: And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver JJ Lang.
1: And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder Julia Rios
0: as we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessive. Why, Why are we, we like, like this? this? Yeah. Yeah. One. 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 Yeah. are <laughs> <laughs> listening to this. Hi, Julia. Hi. So here's the thing.
1: I do not like any sentence that has ever started with here's the thing. (laughs) I hate that thing. I already hate it.
0: You do. I was thinking, you know... A lot of our listeners have been saying incredibly nice things about us as a podcast. And at first, for like a split second, that felt really good. But then I was thinking about it and I was like, I don't know most of these people and I don't even know what they think. Like, why does it just feel good? What if all of our listeners are just idiots with terrible opinions?
1: <laughs> what if they have bad taste? Exactly. And they like us and we should feel bad. About exactly. It. We know that there's no chance of that. Come on. We're, we are very polarizing personalities. Like attracts like. I feel like we are creating a podcast community of all stars.
0: Well, that may be true. And we are about to find out for we have yeah. invited our listeners to tweet at us their most spicy, controversial chess opinions for a segment that we would like to call Convince Me. You're supposed <laughs> to say that with me.
1: Yeah. Convince Me. We'll Convince me. it. <laughs> Convince, Convince Me. me.
0: <laughs> so Julia, how is this going to work or not work?
1: Yeah. So this is going to be a regular segment that we do whenever we remember it exists. It's going to be called Convince Me. We take a controversial chess take and we try to convince each other that the most ridiculous, absurd things are absolutely true and see if we can get there. Absolutely. We just got a really good one, JJ.
0: Let's start with that one. Someone
1: just tweeted us and said, "Devour her openings are for cowards. Okay, let's just
0: <laughs> let's just bang out all the opening ones real quick and then we can get into it. the real chess. Okay. Okay, So are we both going to try and defend them? Are we going to argue against them? Do you want me to defend this one?
1: I I think it's going to be a free for all. We both take whatever side we want and maybe we argue with each other. Maybe we convince each other. I think we got to just follow our hearts and have no rules.
0: Okay, no rules. But if we agree on something, I'm going to like devil's advocate you because I almost got a PhD in that before I forgot to finish.
1: But then I'm also going to switch because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. So now we're both going to be on the wrong side. Deal. Okay, great.
0: Okay. First take we see D4 openings are for cowards.
1: From Spooky Cat. Thank you, Spooky Cat.
0: Julia, your thoughts?
1: Immediately agree. This is barely even a controversial take. If you're playing D4, you're a scared person.
0: I'm so glad you said that, Julia, because I was about to say something very similar, which is this might be the dumbest opinion I've seen on the (laughs) thread. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Let's do it. All goes off. You're playing E4. You don't know what you're going to get. You have to know so many things. I play E4. I might have to play a Sicilian. I might have to play a French. I might have to play a Karo Khan. I might have to play E4, E5. I don't know what I'm going to get. It could be a hyper-accelerated dragon. That makes me fearless. Look, like, <laughs> I can take on the world. People who play E4 are walking around like BDS. People who are afraid are out there playing their little D4. I need to be safe. I want to make it to the end game because I'm a scared person. It's just a personality trait. Prove me wrong.
0: Okay, I'm not sure which part of that makes the least sense. First of all, I too can list a bunch of openings. Grunfeld, Queen's Gambit, Decline, Slav, Semi-Slav, Kings Indian, Queens Indian, Nimzo Indian.
1: Those all sound identical to me. I don't know.
0: <laughs> Second of all, there might be more distinct pawn structures within the Grunfeld alone than there are in every opening you named. Third... Mm. The idea of I just want to get to the end game. Oh, yeah. The most complicated phase of the game where like a single tempo can cost you the entire game. Oh, yeah. That's somebody who's really cowardly. Uh Uh-huh. You're just trying to get mate or get mated so you don't have to be exposed on move 40 for the end game. Do you you sound
1: how personally JJ is taking this as a D4 player?
0: I don't even know if I'm a D4 player, but I can tell you why I'm taking this so personally. (laughs) Yes. Um, I'm not sure if anyone knows this, but as a teenager, I used to be a teenage boy. And when I was a teenage boy, I genuinely believed this. I was like all E4, everything, open Sicilians and dragons, King's Gambit. I genuinely believed that if you weren't playing for like burning bridges, mate tactics from from the get-go, you were a coward. And I think that I've realized in my later years in wisdom that what you are the most upset with and infuriated by is what you understand the least oftentimes.
1: Or what you embody. Body the most, you were scared, and you were playing e four. Maybe e four yes. is the coward's opening.
0: Exactly, exactly. And it was because I did not want to get to all of these positions that I could tra- I could study my tactics and I could train my tactics, and that didn't make me better at a lot of other facets of chess. And so it was easier to rail against them and like insult the character of the people who played them than it was to learn the well-rounded game. And I think the thing that I would love to show Teenage JJ now is that the vast majority of the tactics I'm proudest of in my own games have come from D4 and C4 games. Because it's a lot easier to get killer tactics from a good position instead of from going out of your way to just get tactics.
1: Okay, well, as convincing as that was, you have not convinced me because I never really sided with the D4 just for coward side. So that was something I already believed. And you've done nothing to change my mind.
0: Okay, great. (laughs) Next up on the openings list is Bishop Pear, friend of the pod, Dan.
1: Dan. What's that?
0: Says that playing the French defense requires verbal consent from your opponent or should require verbal consent from your opponent.
1: First off, immediately, I love it. I I love it. I mean, yes. I'm really actually glad Dan backed up their point here and added a little extra by explaining one e 4 is an invitation to play the Sicilian. Correct. That's 100% mm-hmm. always true. Mm-hmm. Responding with the French instead is like someone holding a door open for you and you punching them in the face. <laughs> that's fucking funny. Okay. I, I agree. I agree so wholeheartedly. I don't even, maybe I could tailor this and say you don't need consent per se. You don't need them to sign the permission slip, but you should apologize as you're playing it.
0: I hear in my head them saying I'm sorry when they play the French already. <laughs> <laughs> but I just don't feel like they mean it. And I don't know if them verbalizing it would make it feel better. I also agree with this, though. And I think that there's also a really general question here, which is should all openings require consent? <laughs> what if you had to agree with your opponent? You had to find something that you found mutually palatable before the game started. Mm, but dang. if you can't agree on something you both lose. So like, there's like a external pressure to not just be disagreeable, but you have to find something that you can both agree on wanting to play for both sides.
1: Right. I, I almost feel like instead of having to come to a mutual agreement, I think everyone should have like a non-consent list. It has mm. to be less than five, mm-hmm. but everyone's allowed to have some, nos.
0: some hard. Yeah. Julia, what's your, what are, what are your hard nose <laughs> and chess? Jesus.
1: <laughs> I have so many in real life and in chess. Basically, everything is a no. <laughs> what is that? That's not true. <laughs> um, it is true. <laughs> Sorry, did y'all get it together? Give me a second. That's I just weird. started thinking about no's, and then I started thinking about yeses. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to look for one. <laughs> okay, alipin. No, don't ever want to see it. Don't want to play it. Don't want to look at it. Don't want to think about it. I see an alipin immediately. Dry. Absolutely not. That's my first no. That's your
0: first one. Cool. That's a good no. We can revisit this later. I was already trying to think about how to be like uh scheming on this. I was like, what if I just double down or like quintuple down and make all five of my hard no's like the five best responses to a certain opening?
1: Oh, that'd be smart. Then you always play that opening, and you always win. Mm-hmm. See, you're hacking the system. I'm not trying to hack the system here. I'm trying to follow my heart.
0: Yeah, no. Yeah, that's it. That's a really good one. And relatedly, I was thinking that a really good kind of uh, feature for some sort of chess site, if you know of any, could be like almost something that works as like a, you know where I'm saying.
1: Yes. Oh my God. Where people can't play that move against you. JJ, that's brilliant.
0: That's not what I said.
1: Oh, fuck. (laughs) But that's okay, fine. I have a better idea. Everyone listen to me. You have a list of no's. This site is called consensual chess. You have a list of no's. Here are the five openings that I have decided is a no-go for me. When your opponent agrees to play you, they can see that list. So they can go play somebody else if they have a different list of yeses and no's. And they physically can't move the piece. You cannot play 2C3 against me. Mm -hmm. You're going to tell me that's not brilliant, that I don't have a brilliant, beautiful mind right now?
0: It's almost as good as my idea.
1: Okay, let's hear your stupid idea.
0: Okay, rather than just everyone writing their little list on their little (laughs) piece of paper by themselves. you
1: see how condescendingly his face looks when you say the word little?
0: The chess server functions as a sort of Tinder-esque dating app where you are trying Mm. to find people to play based off of either openings you both want to play or just general sort of like, maybe Tinder's the wrong one. Maybe it's more like FetLife and everyone's putting up like Uh. ads. For like what, like what, what they're trying to get out of their chess game. And like you respond to people who are like writing about chess and like what they're looking for in a way yeah. that matches with you.
1: Okay. First of all, it's fucking brilliant. Second of all, it's the same website. This is all on consensual chess. You hit the yeses. I hit the nose. It's the same idea.
0: Or we can call it chess life.
1: <laughs> Did you say chess life or chess light?
0: Uh, chess Light was something else, but this can be Chess Life. I don't think that's taken.
1: Okay, make the website. Buy the website right now, JJ.
0: You know that Chess Life is the name of the US Chess Magazine, right?
1: <laughs> no, that's so much funnier. I did know that, but I wasn't. Yeah, I know. That. I
0: watched you. Yeah. Okay, no, that's it.
1: fucking hilarious. It's funny <laughs> on multiple levels. I think we should buy it right now. Okay, will someone please buy us that website and send that to our email, podcast at gmail.com.
0: Oh, that's the email. Okay, so we've, we agreed. I'm not sure where that started, but... Um, so somebody wanted to talk about the Caro and the French, but I don't want to do that. Agree or disagree?
1: Oh, I don't want to do that. Agree. Okay. Consent.
0: Brayden said something about the Berlin endgame, and then I stopped reading. Agree or disagree? I know.
1: Well, I started to read his comment, and then I, I fell asleep. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember what Brayden said. But Brayden also said on Twitter, I thought you loved me. We could argue that.
0: Mm, okay. I do agree that he thought that. What do you, What's your take? <laughs>
1: And I agree that we love you, Brayden.
0: Cool. All right. Next. Next. Okay. Someone talked about pushing the F on, which. Okay. Who did? Oh, just on move one. Someone named Cal.
1: Don't do that. Next.
0: Okay. I think we finally got all the opening shit out there, except for the best one. Okay. People who play the fried liver deserve to die. (laughs) Agree or disagree? Okay. Agree. I'm right. o- I feel bad because like we've already outed them as being bad at sex a couple episodes ago. So I don't feel like okay, let,
1: let me play the other side. Okay. I don't. Okay. I don't think they deserve to die because I don't think anyone deserves to die. Mm. But if someone had to die, that might be a better candidate for who could go first.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. I have a similar take, which is that I don't think people who play the fried liver deserve to die because I don't think anybody who plays the fried liver is a person. <laughs>
1: Fuck, that's funny.
0: (laughs) But more generally, there's something kind of weird about, in general, when I see the openings that get shit on the most, I think of pretty closed and almost like timid play. But the fried liver is the opposite, right? It's like guns a blazing, burning bridges. It's not good. And it's definitely played at lower levels, especially for tricks and traps. But It's always weird to me that people get mad about that because it's a pretty easy opening to get a solid open game with the initiative against. At the very least, you get a game that is pleasant for Black, which is just not usually true against the butthurt openings like the London or the French.
1: But there is something about the fried liver that kind of rubs us all the wrong way. Okay, here's here's a controversial take. I don't even know if I agree or disagree, but let's argue it out. Okay. Fried liver is just the chess.com eleven hundreds version of Scholar's Mate.
0: Hard agree. Hard agree.
1: All right, we're hard agree.
0: Okay, we're hard.
1: <laughs> we're agreeing.
0: Oh, somebody, somebody's most controversial opinion. This was the last one of the opening ones. Was that the London system is a good opening?
1: Mm. Okay, I want you to disagree in all. No agree. way. You said you were a switch.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. The London is not a good opening. Trying to play it as an opening where you're like memorizing variations and like basing it off of certain plans is just like trying to take a shortcut in chess. And these are the same liars and cheats that are trying to take a shortcut in life. When you're playing the London, you're playing it not as an opening. You're playing it as a sort of commitment to a lifestyle. Playing it for the goodness of the opening is a mistake and speaks to the lack of imagination in your character. Okay. prove
1: me wrong. Yeah. So the way that I'm going to refute that is to say that I don't think that any of those are character flaws or defects. What is wrong with someone who wants to live a life with no imagination? You go to the ice cream shop, the vanilla tastes delicious, get vanilla. You can always put sprinkles on top. Why can't we just let people live? Why can't you just leave them alone?
0: I mean, I would love to leave them alone, but the problem is since uh, our website, Chess Life, Consensual (laughs) Chess is not up yet, they keep getting paired against me.
1: (laughs) We're going to bring this to (laughs) life.
0: Um, okay, good. We have made it through the opening segment. Now, let's go all the way to the other end of the spectrum. No, not the end game. That's disgusting, Julia.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is morally objectionable, filthy.
0: The end of the game.
1: Wait, the end of the game is is the chess boom dying. That was a good sequitur. <laughs> let's just argue that. No one no okay. one posted it, but it's good.
0: Okay. Is the chess boom dying? Better question. Was the chess boom ever real or were there just more people watching chess on Twitch?
1: The chess boom was for sure real because there were more people playing chess on chess.com and LeadChess. Chess Chess boards were selling out places you couldn't even get one and people were watching more streams. I mean, we can't argue that the chess boom wasn't real. There was a little little baby boom in there.
0: Okay. And I do love baby boomers, but... (laughs) By real, I guess, can we be clear on what the chess boom was? When people talk about the chess boom is dying out, like, does that mean there are fewer people playing chess? There are fewer people getting serious about chess, looking for coaches entering into tournaments, like, are those on the decline or was there just like a sort of culture fad in chess that is dipping? I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to get a feel of like what, yeah. what, what came in and what is going away. And are those two even the same thing? And the, the real thing I'm trying to get at is that I think that a large number of people who dip their toes into chess are probably falling out of it. But if proportionally, you know, like 10% of the people who dip their toes and stick around, I don't really think it's fair to be like there's a 90% drop off is just like, wow, one in 10 people who check this out decided to get serious about it. That like by raw numbers, they're dropping drastically, but that doesn't feel like a drop off. That's like, wow, this retention rate is actually super high for such a stupid fucking game.
1: Yes, I agree. So if you zoom out and look at that trajectory, overall, Mm -hmm. I agree that the the numbers are probably still elevated in all those right places, but I think that there is something to be said that there was almost this cultural phenomenon. And I don't think this is the first time it's happened in history. People talk about how when Fisher was really successful, people- he was canceled.
0: We can't <laughs> we have to edit that out. Right.
1: We'll bleep, we'll bleep that out. <laughs> but when fisher was really successful, there was almost this really high interest in chess for a lot of people for the first time. And people were joining chess clubs and more people were trying to play and buying chess boards and how- even a year or two later, they saw that steep drop off. Mm-hmm. So I think there is something to be said for that. There was almost this cultural excitement. I think it started with COVID, but I think it really took off after Queen's Gambit. And a lot of those people are kind of getting back to their normal life. So even though, like you said, a ten percent of those people stick around, the numbers are overall up. But I think the boom, the cultural sensation around it, isn't quite what it was at this time a year ago.
0: Okay, I agree with that. But I think even within that, you know, like I don't think that even ten percent of the people who were tuning into chess on Twitch once or twice, or making an account on chess.com, we even getting as far as looking for their local chess club.
1: Oh yeah, I agree.
0: So the part that I wonder about with the boom dying is, is the boom dying in the sense that pretty much all casual observers either got absorbed into the fold or lost interest, or is the boom dying in raw numbers, but there's still a greater number of people seeking out those clubs or starting clubs. Like I feel like even in Nebraska, there's more clubs starting and I'm still seeing lots of unrated players entering events. And so I just kind of am skeptical of the claim that the boom is dying or dying out when I still see a lot of new people still coming in or waiting into or starting new things. Because here in this the... the boom was all about IRL OTB and like whether it was clubs or tournaments, but here, like uh, one of the major things driving the whole chess boom discussion is like fucking Gotham chess's viewership, which is a very, very different thing.
1: Yeah. Okay. I actually totally agree with you. It really depends on what we're calling the boom. If we're calling the boom, what I've described, which includes people who log into chess.com and play two games and have any interest in chess and watch Gotham chess stream. That is definitely dying. The, The uptick that you're describing, I think for sure is alive and well. Look at that. (laughs) All right. You convinced me. I agree. I agree. I'm actually really curious to hear your opinion on this one, JJ. Rating inflation is a myth. The actual problem is the opposite from Jack Rudd.
0: Yes. Oh, I totally buy that. So rating inflation, as I understand it, is the idea that a 2000 rated player today is not nearly as good as a 2000 rated player X years ago. I think a reason for that is, you know, if you look at the highest levels, you have 50-ish people over 2,700 feet versus 50 years ago when like maybe no one was or maybe only fish was. And so it's very easy to be like, yeah, um, at the very least relative to competition, there's no way that fish wouldn't have been in the top 50 or something. That's for sure true. And so in the sense that as other people get their ratings up, 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 it becomes easier to get your rating up just by holding your own against everyone. And then I guess the next assumption is that trickles down to lower amateur club levels. And that's always seemed kind of weird because first of all, it might just be true that a lot of today's players are straight up better than people from a generation ago at the same at the same rating levels, or that's why their rating is higher for the simple reason that we have computers and we have all of their old games to study off of.
1: That's what I was about to say. We have so many resources today. Any old person can turn on their computer, can sit down for one evening, a few hours, and get quite a bit better at chess and be able to beat most of their friends who have never studied chess for five minutes.
0: And if you look at the GM level, you know, if you take like your favorite 2650 from 50 years ago, I'm sure that, you know, give them today's resources and whatnot in a couple of years, and I'm sure they're shooting up to high 2700s, but I'm not as convinced that they're not just a 2650 player if they're stuck with the resources that they had in their era, even if clearly by looking at their games and their talent and the way that they thought about chess, it's clear that they were like an immense talent who would be top 10. If given the resources in today's era, it just, just doesn't automatically qualify. I don't know. Or it's like when people like debate yeah. about like old athletes and how they stack with today. And it's like, I I mean yeah okay probably with like today's training programs and whatnot i agree with you but like i refuse to believe that a lot of these all-time greats from 80 years ago could hold their own against people who actually have like diet and nutrition plans that are like tailor-made to their body and have all these things that are like optimized training programs like right embrace modernity
1: so i totally agree with you i'm also interested though there's sort of another way that we can think about rating inflation where I've even heard people saying that they feel like there's rating inflation happening on a smaller scale level. Mm. Like, Oh, on Lee chess, my rating just went up 200 and because yeah. of different people, either joining the platform or the way the algorithm works, I feel like there's inflation even within the website right now.
0: Nice. Nice. And that ties in to uh have you heard's point that, um, online ratings are just meaningless, which is, a- yeah, yeah. Um, and meaningless in part because there's no like relative scale. Yeah. So like Chess famously has a blog post that they always have to repost about how they just literally use a different formula to determine rating than other websites. Right. And so like talking about inflation or deflation is just conceptually misguided because the numbers just don't even have the same meaning. So comparing them straightforwardly just doesn't work. But I also like the point that, yeah, if you have a chess boom and lots of people are joining and they're all joining in with the same rating, that can totally change the thing. And chess.com will start a lot of people who say that they're new to chess with ratings of like 400 or so. And Lee Chess starts everyone at 1,500 and you will sink pretty quickly if you're not playing at that strength. But I think if you actually have a massive influx of new users, then yeah, that will buoy ratings up more on the site that starts everyone 1,500 than on the site that doesn't. So I think that's to- that totally could be a source. Something else that I think is just totally true about rating deflation is because of the pandemic, you have a lot of people, not just kids for over-the-board chess, but especially kids who lost I don't, 16 months of... Over the board chess for like, I don't know, look at a lot of these kids who ended up being like titled players by the time they were like in high school, Um, not even just like the super prodigies, but just like players who got to like over 2000 or over 2200 by the time they were 18. And you look at like these periods in their life where they shoot up hundreds of points in 16 months. Some of that development was probably stunted by the lack of tournaments, but a lot of it probably wasn't stunted. They just didn't have the ratings for it. So now you have a bunch of like... Totally. Yeah. Like that that eight-year-old girl I played, I think I mentioned her on the pod before, who like was 1100 six months ago or something and is 1800 now.
1: Yeah. I think people are seeing a lot more of that. Everyone I know is talking about that. Like, I'm going to tournaments right now when things are opening for the first time. And I feel terror when I see a child across from me. I know that that quote unquote 880 player is actually a secret 1600 who's yeah. about to just absolutely wreck my ELO.
0: Right. And so what that would mean is that there's a there's a radical redistribution of the wealth, which yeah. will overall have the effect of bringing it down. Because the thought would be that if suddenly a bunch of 2000s are suddenly losing to a bunch of 1200s, that's going to wreck their ratings. And if everyone was truly rated, that would mean a bunch of 2000s were overrated. But what will actually be happening is like, no, these are a bunch of 2000s losing to like 18, but they're right. having their ratings truly smashed by it. And then suddenly they go and play like a 2100 and hold their own because they're still playing at that level. They just played a bunch of kids. Yeah. I think especially post-pandemic, I think rating deflation should be the default assumption.
1: Yes. Okay. Jack Red, you've convinced us. We agree.
0: Here's an interesting one. Chessable is overrated.
1: <laughs> well, let's start the conversation by asking what is Chessable rated? <laughs> what's, what's their what's rating? The rating? <laughs> <laughs> it's a mixed bag because <laughs> I, I, I travel in circles where I feel like people see Chessable for what it is. Mm. Which means like you and Gopal are my friends and that's it. (laughs) And Chessable is super useful, right? But I do think there is that trap of thinking that Chessable is going to be the end-all be-all of improving at chess. But you'll have a better idea. What is the vibe for Chessable, especially at your level? What's its rating?
0: I really don't have a vibe for what players my level think of Chessable. I think that the version of Chessable is overrated that I'm super sympathetic to is this impression of, here's a website that's just about openings. False, but that is a lot of what they advertise because that shit sells. Um,
1: And it lends itself well to that platform, right? That is something that... You can learn the London and click through the first twelve moves.
0: And now, and now even worse, you can learn like harder openings with hundreds yeah, of variations, worse. and with all of them worked out to like which lines force the draw by move thirty. And this is just the sort of thing that genuinely is not practical for people who are like not just like sub two thousand, but I mean like sub professional players. Right. And I think that you can really invest a lot of time into believing that you're learning a lot, not just about the opening or like as a resource, but learning a lot. About About capital C chess in a way that like isn't gonna help your game as much as lots of other things would. Like capital C coach capital C coach, a lowercase case C coach. (laughs) Um, But but I think if the claim is really just that grinding openings based on memorization alone is overrated, hard agree. And if there's a little bit of a criticism that by hyping these like super GM written courses for players who have no business needing to memorize every variation of an opening with the spaced repetition being there as a way of kind of suggesting that, oh, this is how you should be using it. You should be memorizing every fucking variation all the way to end. Yeah. I think that there's, a totally legitimate criticism there. But I think that what you miss there is that there's so many wonderful ways to use Chessable. Like I'm very happy to get courses, even in the opening, just as a resource or reference material, read through them for ideas, not try to memorize too much. But still, I can get a really valuable feel for like what contemporary variations are, like look for some novelties in a line or at the very least, if I start running into a brick wall and a certain variation in something in my repertoire, it can be really nice to search through something online and see what's there instead of just having to go through like a book that might be more likely to be out of date. But also I think the most important thing is that the vast majority of chessable courses out there aren't about the opening at all. And it's just like a different way to read and engage with chess material. In that sense, I don't really understand. The claim that Chessable is overrated. I mean, yeah, I'm sure some books are better than others.
1: Yes, that's such a good point.
0: Some books are better suited for for non-opening stuff. Some things are better suited for... Space repetition than others. Like I think we were talking a little bit before about like the 100 endgames you must know course. Like these yeah, that's are what I was say. the idea of the must know really is must know in a sense of like be able to grind out instantly and play like the back of your hand. And totally. so space repetition makes a lot of sense there. You can also do space repetition of all the positions in Dvoretsky's endgame manual, and I don't know why. <laughs> and so in that sense, sure, okay, that might not be the best use of the system, but it's all like just an e-reader or something. So. I don't know. I think that I'll let them keep sponsoring us. What do you think?
1: (laughs) Yeah. How how can we make sure we hold on to that? Let's put in a little soundbite, JJ, of us being very complimentary.
0: Chessable rules. Every morning when I wake up, I love getting on Chessable. After clearing out my queue, which does not have over 6,000 variations on it, I buy at least three new courses. If you don't, can you even call yourself a serious adult improver?
1: I do that too. (laughs)
0: Can we talk about the most interesting part of chess? Yes. Draw.
1: (laughs) Well, we've gotten a lot of comments about the draw. Draw should not be allowed. You shouldn't be able to offer a draw. If you are in a losing position and you go for the threefold repetition, you are a bad person. (laughs) People seem pretty angsty about the draw, actually. The general sentiment seems to be anti-
0: yeah, I don't get that at all. I'm going to take the general sentiment of anti against that claim. Um, draws fucking rule. If
1: Jaden's <laughs> having trouble keeping a straight face.
0: No, I, I, I'm just like, I'm truly outing myself for who I am. I'm like a true verse. I'm just like a Libra moon and rising. I love draws. Everyone should get half the point. <laughs> no, okay. Chess without draws honestly sounds like a terrible game because, as arbitrary as certain things like a stalemate being a draw or three move repetition being a draw or whatever it is, if the end result was you win or lose, period, I feel like that requires the side who is slightly worse to be taking a lot of risk to play for a win from a slightly worse position. And that is famously one of the easiest ways to quickly lose a game, right? Like You just implode, you try and strike from a position that doesn't warrant it, and then a few moves later you resign, and then your much stronger rated friends or coaches points out all the ways you could have offered up more stubborn resistance, where that form of stubborn resistance is often trying to show that that advantage your opponent had was insufficient for a win. Right. So I just think that without the threat of you have achieved some sort yeah. of advantage, maybe you're pawn up, maybe you have better pieces, more activity, without the threat of the defending side being able to argue that they can hold that, that um then right. all they would have to do is just like just implode and self-destruct. And that sounds like a terrible game. So in general, I'm very pro-draw.
1: Okay. How would the game of chess be different? Let's let's just do a thought yeah. experiment. How would it fundamentally change the game of chess if we said, okay, let's take away the draw? <laughs> it doesn't yeah. exist anymore.
0: Let's make it even more extreme. Let's, I mean, what if there's one saying that um when there is insufficient mating material, mm. the side that has more material is the winner? King and knight versus king is the win for the side with the knight because they have more stuff.
1: Love it. All yeah. right, on board.
0: And that's the kind of thing that I'd be worried about, right? Where it's like, you can no longer try and hold king and rook pawn versus king in the end game or trade down to that or something because it's just a loss. They have the pawn and you don't. And that means that you no longer have to stubbornly try and hold and trade down to a holdable rook end game or a calculate a pawn end game. And it's just, well, I'm down a pawn. And so if I keep trading, I'll lose by default. So I have to just self-destruct and go all in on the attack. And it just sounds boring.
1: Right. Does that sound boring? I feel like most people would hear that and be like, yeah, that sounds exciting.
0: Okay, but I mean, you even have people in this Twitter feed being like, oh, yeah, when you just don't resign from a losing position, you're an asshole. And it's like, okay, cool. But like by taking away the possibility of a game being drawn, every slightly worse position becomes a losing position, which means you have a bunch of people who, if they just play tame solid chess, will trade down into a quote unquote losing position because they're like pawned down or something. They've just lost.
1: So is this almost like a monopoly effect? Like once someone starts winning a little bit at Mm -hmm. all, the whole point is like now there's almost this division of equality in the game and it actually takes away the fun for that person to have a fighting chance.
0: Exactly. And, and because it, it, it cranks up the urgency of the defending side or the worst side.
1: Right. To 11, right.
0: And and there's a difference between attacking from a complicated position versus like the desperado. And yes. and I don't think it's really fun to have to defend against desperados every single time you're up a <laughs> pawn. And and I don't think it's really fun to have to play that way because like you don't have any sort of way to like hold a draw. It just sounds like I don't know, it kind of just feels like I'm just, you know, like playing like 3-0 all the time, but like in slow motion where just like positional shit doesn't matter. And as soon yeah, as you Yeah, like, yeah. That's yeah. a
1: good illustration. No, I
0: think the draw is like what is keeping the balance of chess in check.
1: Okay. Who out there listening is not convinced? You've convinced me.
0: Anish Giri. <laughs>
1: Okay, I want to circle back.
0: We were talking about hashtag never resign.
1: Yes, I really do want to talk about this because there are such competing views and you'll see people who say, at least at a certain level, you should never resign. You should at least see how your opponent mates you so that you can learn something or you should try to get that fighting chance. Maybe your opponent flags, maybe they blunder. No matter what, never give up. But then every once in a while, someone posts on Twitter and be like, if you don't resign a losing position, you are a monster and beneath me and I'm better than you.
0: Yeah, I think the only correct take here is that um, the only appropriate time to resign a g- game of chess is when I do, which is sometimes <laughs> never and sometimes like as soon as I'm losing, but I'm always exactly right in making the choice there. <laughs> and I I also refuse to believe that other than like Jonathan Korbala, who's like famously never resigned a game of chess in his life and has like a really good interview on our sister podcast also sponsored by chessable perpetual chess
1: which is the same as chess feels
0: <laughs> yeah i'm your host ben johnson and julia <laughs> no, is also your I'm host ben johnson. ben johnson no i'm we're both ben johnson
1: okay I,
0: but in his perpetual chess interview like he talks about how he's never resigned a game of chess in his life how he thinks it teaches you to build characters and teaches kids a fighting spirit but that also Yikes. he had some of his students playing a simul against kasparov or like no like so he played a game against Kasparov and in a simul or something and pissed Kasparov off by not resigning, and then Kasparov held this against him and then some of his students are at a simul against Kasparov and like the organizer tells all the kids when you're losing don't waste Mr. Kasparov's time just like resign and then the kids like look at Korbla, their coach, who just starts shaking his head no like <laughs> and the kids all like play out to me and so but if you're not Korblah, I think most people will resign more quickly in certain positions than others are for whatever reason, maybe they're mad and rage quit, or maybe they're mad and rage keep playing as a form of self punishment. But I just don't think very many people are consistent in when they do or don't resign. And I think it's
1: like more of an emotional decision. Almost,
0: Yeah. And I, and I just wish people, I just wish people were more honest about this because the the reason that I truly don't have an opinion in general about it is I just don't think most people have a consistent policy on when they resign or not. And they would like to think that they have a consistent one and that it's a right one and that it's like morally like justified, but I'm sure that they've all swindled motherfuckers more than they want to admit, even if they feel like they don't that much. And even if they feel like they just got burned by somebody doing something they never would have done themselves by somebody who never resigned and swandeled them. I think we all do it. And I'm sure some people do it more than others, but it just seems like a weird thing to get madder about because I just refuse to believe that for most people doing this, that they're actually self-aware about yes, I the totally fact that agree. they don't do it. Um, that said in general is never resign a good policy.
1: It can't be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I so because, agree.
1: Because sometimes you're in a simul and someone's tired and you're losing like you should resign. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I don't know, I, I feel like maybe a lot of people listening to this will relate to kind of where I am in my chess play as a non-professional, um, kind of like advanced beginner. I feel like I should actually be resigning less (laughs) because especially when I'm playing online, the second I blunder that piece, there certainly are times where I am just sort of like, well, I'd rather just start fresh and play a position where I have that fighting chance. But frankly, the times where I don't do that, when I kind of push myself to stay in the game, it's really cool and surprising to see how often I actually can crawl my way back and I don't lose. I don't know. I feel like I feel like I could have a little bit more of a never resign spirit.
0: Yeah. I think this also ties back into last week's discussion about what your goals are for a particular game of chess. Yeah. I think that the question of like, well, when should you resign or when's it appropriate to resign is a question that doesn't make sense without context of what your goals are. If your goals are maximize winning chances and, like, win as many games as possible or lose as few games as possible. Well, yeah, obviously, you should never resign. You're never going to get anything but a loss by resigning. But I just think that's a really shitty goal because, like, you're wasting a lot of time playing chess that isn't going to be worthwhile but you do run the risk like julia is saying of if you give up every time things start getting bad you do miss some opportunities to learn the sorts of resilience that could make you a better player from positions that are bad but maybe holdable for a draw because draws rule (laughs) or maybe (laughs) totally but also i think the thing i don't like about the whole like well teach the kids resilience is like i feel like i've been at so many tournaments like scholastic tournaments or just when i see kids play now especially Who have clearly been told by someone, like a parent or a teacher, never resign. And I just see so many of these kids, they're miserable, they're blitzing out all their moves, even if they might even have some chances. They're literally like down a pawn and start going into self-destruct mode because they just want to resign. I don't think that's teaching resiliency. I understand it's intended to. I think it's teaching them to remember that a lot of the time they spent that the chessboard was spent suffering and miserable and wishing they were anywhere else.
1: I was totally going to say that. How are we defining resiliency? Can resiliency Mm -hmm. be Mm -hmm. a long-term thing where even when you lose and you have to resign, you still show up the next day? Can we also think about resiliency as almost this form of self-care where you don't let yourself get totally stomped on and you sort of say enough is enough? How can we think about resiliency in a way that really ignites that sense of self-preservation as well? If we're thinking about it on and off the chessboard, my gut feel about that automatically is like, hey, when this kid is tired and has been playing for an hour and is going to lose this game, can we actually give them the resiliency to say, I accept the loss and I can be gracious and I'll show up again tomorrow?
0: That's that's well put, and I'm totally with you. And I think even on the flip side, in in teasing apart this notion of resiliency from the result of the game, like is it really teaching them resilience that like, oh, if I don't resign long enough, maybe I don't know. Like I think about like my most fortunate was win win was when my opponent was in extreme time pressure and physically dropped the piece he was trying to move, and by the time he picked it off off the floor, he had flagged and it's like heartbreaking right i mean i I didn't it was a mutual time scramble so i don't feel like i was only playing that position for the clock but like maybe i was Hmm. (laughs) oh well see this is what i mean with the whole inconsistency thing
1: Ooh, we should talk about dirty flagging we'll circle back
0: we should talk about dirty flagging but just to say like why does it even count as resilience when like you just don't resign for long enough and your opponent physically mishandles a piece and hands you the win like yes you got the point you got the victory you got the rating whatever but like not only is what julia is saying about like the sort of having like the kind of character and strength to be like i've lost and i'm admitting it and i'm moving on and i'm going to come back there's also like i don't understand what's resilient around just sitting here until your opponent like has a heart attack and gives you the forfeit victory (laughs) that doesn't that's not that doesn't build character that's that's teaching this really bad lesson
1: i agree yeah
0: and i think you could learn a lot more by like learning how to like catch your breath and take care of yourself after a loss, like Julia said, than from sitting yeah. there and being like, I hope you have an aneurysm.
1: Yes, we got to totally agree. Okay, we're going to start the new viral hashtag, which is hashtag sometimes resign.
0: Always resign.
1: <laughs> hashtag immediately resign. <laughs> okay, incredible. <laughs> There's another one, JJ, that I really want to hear you talk about. I All can't right. believe someone tweeted this at us because JJ and I literally had this conversation last weekend. We were in a used bookstore, I
0: know, and
1: is. <laughs> the topic of my system came up. And this is everyone's favorite thing to shit on. JJ, please, please convince our listeners the merit of my system.
0: My favorite chess book, bar none. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, don't go like so overboard that we unconvince them.
0: I think I'm serious.
1: Your favorite. Okay, great. I, convince me. At
0: least favorite of the 20th century, like not contemporary books.
1: I started yeah. with Convince Me of the Merit, which you had uh-huh. already done, as I uh-huh. said. But now I want you to convince me that it's your favorite chess book of all time.
0: <laughs> okay, so what's your impression of why everyone hates this book so much?
1: People have a lot of negative things to say about it. From what I understand, what is kind of inherently unlikable about it is that it's so dry that it doesn't Mm. really lend itself well to learning the depth and breadth and richness of chess.
0: Yeah, and I think also the uh, general writing is just very abrasive and... Yeah, uninviting and hard to parse and almost comic in that way. And I think it's the part that I think I'm the most sensitive to is the part where people really shit on the writing style, as well as this general idea of it trying to do too much or like not doing as good of a job as it can at it. Yeah. But I think my response to that is just like pretty much every chess book, except for maybe like under the surface is poorly written because chess players and authors are not supposed to be good writers. This is just like most people who sing in a band are bad singers because most people have (laughs) terrible voices. And like, that's okay. But then suddenly everyone picks on one person who has a particular kind of bad singing and decide this is who we're going to make fun of as like the paradigmatic bad singer, even though the vast majority of singers for pop and rock bands suck. And so it's (laughs) like, oh, it's like, oh, this is the bad kind of writing.
1: Who is that person that always gets picked on?
0: I was thinking like maybe Chad Kroger from Nickelback, who's like obviously a terrible singer, but like, I don't know if Eddie Vedder for Pearl Jam is better at than Chad Kroger is, but I'm not sure that Chad Kroger actually has a more annoying voice than Eddie Vedder, but we've just decided for various reasons (laughs) that one is like the paradigm of a horrible voice.
1: Okay, sidebar. Nickelback is a really good band perhaps the voice of our generation. Convince me.
0: As a quantitative scientist, you would presumably agree that the only way to measure the merits of something would be with an objective standard, such as how much money they make. So Nickelback (laughs) is really good. QED.
1: You're so stupid. Okay, back to my system.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I almost find like the archaic prose and just like practical incoherence of it kind of delightful and almost flying in the face of the idea of he's trying to write a system or systematize something or take the nuance out of it. And it's like, no, like he's actually going to great length to avoid giving very simple platitudes that would do that thing. What you hate about the writing is watching somebody taking great pains to get nuance out of ideas and resist being... Simplified down to something that could just lead a lot of people astray. And I think that's actually beautiful. But just more generally, like I rarely read a chess book and I'm like, oh yeah, that was engaging, clear, and genuinely helpful provocative prose. This is not just a well-curated collection of diagrams.
1: So what was the book you said you read cover to cover in two days?
0: Oh well, under the surface is Jan Marcos, but I said that I read his other book with the Vinavara, The Secret yeah. Ingredient. Yeah. Yeah, this is a good ingredient. But like these are these, I mean, Marcos especially, but these were like, they're writing a book in this way that's almost like very playful and clever in terms of like setting out to write what they term a boring chess book of rather than writing a book of the game collection of the games that you're so proud of from your whole career, where you had a clear plan start to finish and were able to execute it and brush over all the details or like lie about the stuff that you saw in advance. It's just like, what about all the games where you really can't figure out what you're doing, or you're like holding like a practical equality for most of the game. And it's not about just seeing and seizing this advantage and converting it, but actually about something really unclear. And then y'all shake hands and agree to a draw on move 41 and trying to explain how that process works and like the daily life of the professional player. And I think that's just so insightful because right. so many players at the amateur level read all of these masterpiece books and game collections and have this thought of like, I'm in this position and I start panicking because I don't know what to do. And it's just so nice reading books like this, or I guess how to play equal positions by Catronius would do this too, where the thought is here's an equal position in the middle game where Magnus Carlsen is clearly thinking, I don't know what to do. And instead of panicking, it's like, okay, so here are some things we can do when we don't know what to do rather than feeling like we quote unquote should know the plan here, or like that's a reasonable expectation. I love that. So that's really, really great stuff. And I think what's so great about that is the way that it is so provocative in probing these notions of what we expect from ourselves. And most books don't do that. Most books are just trying to explain chess, and they use a lot of words like with initiative or like should be easier to play. And it's just not very good writing.
1: Yeah, and it's not accessible, right? It, it can feel inscrutable to a lot of people. You might have a bad time.
0: Yeah, and you might. But it's, but it's... it's
1: your favorite, so tell us why.
0: Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think that you have to view a book that's written so poorly with a certain amount of... you, you Just view it like you're in on the joke.
1: That is exactly how people describe this podcast. They're like, <laughs> it is inscrutable. I have no idea what these people are talking about. It is long and dense and dry, but I feel like I'm in on the joke.
0: Do you think that person who responded on Twitter to our first episode suggesting we make fewer inside jokes still listens to the podcast?
1: (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah, you guys, if you feel like we should be making fewer inside jokes, definitely don't bother listening anymore. But if you feel like we should be making more inside jokes, I don't know, send us a tweet. Tell us how funny you think we are.
0: Don't talk to us. (laughs)
1: You can talk to JJ at Chessfields. I think it's so funny when I went on Kevin's Chess Journeys podcast. Mm -hmm. At one point, he was asking for contact information. I think I gave your Twitter handle, JJ, before my own. I was like, if you need a coach, JJ Lang is the best. We also have a podcast. And if you need to contact me, there is no pressure to contact me. You do not need to follow me. But if for some reason you cannot help yourself, here's my Twitter handle. Look at the very, very end. And
0: then you said (laughs) at Chessfields again. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I should have done that. It's so funny. <laughs> damn it. That's hilarious.
0: Okay. So if you heard all of these debates and were like, damn, they didn't even tell me that my opinion was right. Well, we'll do this again. Tweet at us with the hashtag sometimes resign to be entered into <laughs> a lottery to have your question or comment roasted on the next installment of Convincing.
1: Yes, please do. And also tweet at us, hashtag Stouffer's lasagna
0: for 20% off of 100 (laughs) meatballs. You must know.
1: No one laughed at that joke. If you heard that and you laugh, you are not allowed to listen to the podcast anymore.
0: I was just Um, trying to think of something. So 100 eggplant Parmesans. You must know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's way better.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> anyway, yeah. Tweet at us with hashtag Stophers Lasagna to see if they'll sponsor us. We actually are in the market for bigger and better sponsors. Please. I'm just kidding, Chessable. We love you. <laughs>
0: they're gonna regret this so much.
1: <laughs> Who is Stofers or Chessable?
0: <laughs> That's the same company. That's what Chessable is.
1: I know no one knows that. Now that we're in, we know that. This it's literally the same people, it's the same building. They're playing chess, they're eating frozen. <laughs> it's wild over there.
0: Andres Toth is just like (laughs) Geert Vanderwild with a bald skullcap.
1: We have to edit that out. Come on, JJ.
0: I don't see why. Judith Polgar (laughs) is just Geert Vanderwild with a... (laughs) Okay,
1: guys. We'll be back with another episode of Convinced Me. I feel like this was a I feel like this was a theme everyone can get on board with.
0: And thanks everyone for tweeting at us and following directions and waiting until we invited the comments for once.
1: <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.
0: As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest.
1: Where 2 plus 2 equals 5, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you.
0: Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia.
1: We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review.
0: And tell all of your friends.
1: (laughs) Yeah, all of them.
0: And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leachess.org.
1: Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter One. at ChessFeelsPod.
0: Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate yeah. to message any feedback.
1: No matter how critical or scathing.
0: Directly to Mr. Daji, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it, at <laughs> Chess Problem One. Yeah.